Again, that's page 926. Uh, so I want to encourage you to keep a copy of the Bible open so that you can follow through this as we preach from this passage. Let me pray, and then we'll look through this together. Father in heaven, we are dependent now on your Holy Spirit to come and bring light and life to the words on these pages. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would speak to us and through us. We know that we are nourished and saved by receiving your word. We know that it is by receiving your implanted word by which we are saved, sanctified. So we pray that you would feed us now with your word, help us to see it. I depend on you and lean not on my preparation, but on you and your Holy Spirit. And we pray that your people would be eager like the Bereans were to receive God's word, that it would change us and we would live for Christ better as we go out from here than we came in. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know if it's true or not, but legend has it that the very first convert in Greece went on to become the first bishop of the city of Athens. Now, if the legend is true, it holds that the very first bishop of the city of Athens would go on to be martyred and killed for his faith in Jesus. And if that legend is true, then we actually meet that bishop in this passage here. In fact, towards the very end of it. If you were to ask that bishop from the city of Athens about his story, how he came to faith in Christ, how he became a Christian, he would have told you that it began when a man named Paul sailed into our city. That's what we're looking at today. We're in Acts 17. We're looking at verses 16 and following. If you remember with me, last week Paul had been chased out of Berea. He had the low lives of Thessalonica who came and ran him out of the city, and now he has sailed to Athens. And if you remember, we said the picture is almost like Paul is being chased from city to city throughout the ancient world. He's carrying a satchel of gospel seed, and the seed keeps spilling out in these different cities, and God keeps sprouting these baby churches, this trail of churches being planted behind Paul. And so now he comes to Athens. We're told at the end of verse 15 in chapter 17 that Paul left behind his two teammates, Silas and Timothy, so that they could tend to these young, sprouting Christian churches. He's let them behind in Berea with this simple command, which is, as soon as you can, catch up with me in Athens. And so now we meet Paul, verse 16, he's waiting in Athens for his teammates, now, if you know anything about Paul, you can almost get the feel that Paul isn't a guy who just sits around and waits. And so in this passage, what we get is while he's in Athens, we get what he saw, what he felt, what he did, what he said, and what happened as a result. I'm borrowing these headings from a commentary by a man named John Stott, and I want to walk us through in this passage those things. What Paul saw, what Paul felt what Paul did, what Paul said, and what happened as a result. So he's waiting for his teammates, the first, what he saw. Waiting for Silas and Timothy to arrive. Here's what he saw. Remember, he is in Athens. If you put back everything you remember about Athens and what you learned in history, you remember that Athens is sort of the intellectual and cultural capital of the world. Remember back to names that sound familiar like Socrates and Plato and Aristotle and Epicurus. All those giants, all those thinkers came from this city. 
Even our, our modern understanding of democracy was birthed out of this city. I mean, this is a city that is legendary in the ideas, philosophies that it's produced, in the giants of thinking and philosophers that it's produced. If anything, you'd imagine this was a perfect time for Paul to sort of do Athens, right? There's architecture to see, there's food to try, there's sights to see, music to hear, culture to experience. And yet Paul in this passage can't play the part of a tourist. He can't just simply take in the sights because of what he sees in the city. And what is it in verse 16 that he sees? It's that he sees idols. And not just idols here and there, but idols everywhere. 16 says, Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was full of idols. The phrase there that Dr. Luke, who's writing this, if you remember, wrote, full of idols, is sort of a phrase that could even be translated, he was walking through a forest of idols. A city that's like a forest of idols, swamped with idols, littered with idols. Idols and statues and altars at every corner, at every street, at every plaza, littered with idols. In fact, there was a saying back in that day that if you went to Athens, you had a better chance of fighting a god than a man. There were idols everywhere in Athens. That's what Paul saw. And seeing it, here's what Paul felt. That's the second one. What did Paul feel? 16 told us. Did you see it? His spirit was provoked within him. That while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, when he saw that the city was full of idols, his spirit was provoked within him. He couldn't play the part of the tourist because seeing what he saw, Paul felt something. He's walking through the city of Athens, all the architecture, all the culture, all the rich history, and yet what he feels is provoked. I, I, I think back to, I remember I had a really good friend in seminary and we were in New York City together at one time. And I remember we were at this busy intersection. I mean, it's downtown, it's Manhattan, thousands of people's cars everywhere, people waiting for the light and this mass of humanity. And my friend, real sincere, turned to me and he said, Ajay, when you see this city and this many people, what do you, what do you think about? And I honestly went, I don't know, nothing. I don't think about anything. And I said, why? why? What, what do you think about? And he, and he said, no, no, nothing. Don't worry about it. I said, no, no, tell me. What is it that you think about? And I had to pry it out of him because he's so humble. He said, I, I just can't believe all these people. And I'm so, do they know Jesus? And who's going to tell them about Jesus? And I feel so burdened for this mass of humanity. Who will bring Christ to them? And I had to be like, yeah, yeah, that's what I was thinking too. I just didn't understand your question. Like I was, I was feeling that as well, right? But I, I had to tell you, like, I, that stays with me. I think of, for example, Matt Cruz. I remember Matt telling me in the early years of planting, he's sitting outside of Malden Public High School. This is where the city, right where they're planting. School lets out these thousands of teenagers just stream out of the public high school. And I remember Matt telling me that he sat in that car, parked there, and just began to weep. Just weep over his city, weep over these children, weep over the thought, do they know Christ? Paul couldn't play tourist in Athens because when he saw this city full of idols, he was moved and troubled and agitated and angered and bothered and stirred. He couldn't simply see in the sights precisely because of what he saw and therefore what he felt. And the word here is an interesting word. It's the word provoked. Provoked is this complex word that carries all those feelings. 
Troubled, agitated, angered, stirred, moved, burdened, bothered, all those words. But in fact, the way you can almost see it is the word provoked here is the same word that's used in the Old Testament when God comes across his people in idolatry. So for example, when the people of Israel are bowing before a golden calf, it says that Yahweh was provoked. And in fact, the word there is also the same word for sort of jealous. That Yahweh had a jealousy about him when his people were bowing to idols. Now, if you take that in for a second, I can imagine to hear that our God is a jealous God, causes you to scratch your head, or worse than that, to be sort of repulsed by that idea. Why would the God of the Bible be described as jealous? I mean, you would imagine that jealousy would be beneath the feeling of a God. In fact, just to tell you how troubling this is, I remember hearing that Oprah Winfrey, if you've ever heard this account, you could Google this, Oprah Winfrey gives the account of when she was 27 or 28 years old, she was sitting in a Baptist church hearing this wonderful preacher preach on the glory and greatness of God. Her soul was being stirred until the preacher said, our God is a jealous God. And she said, in that moment, she was done. She just couldn't imagine why God, if there is a God, like the one in the Christian scriptures, would feel something as petty and beneath him as jealousy. She just couldn't imagine how could God be jealous of her, jealous for her. And I I think I could totally understand why it would be a troubling thing to hear God as a jealous God. But, But here's the thing. When you think about jealousy, jealousy is essentially what you feel when you encounter a rival. But what makes jealousy right or wrong is what business that rival has in that space. Here's what I mean. So for example, if you're jealous because someone's smarter than you, prettier than you, funnier than you, more successful than you, more popular than you, more athletic than you, then you know innately that's wrong because you don't have a monopoly on intelligence or academics or success or athletics. You don't own any of that. You can't look at any of those spheres and say, mine, as though no one else should come. And yet, if you were to think, on the other hand, if you were provoked, this word, if you were jealous because some intruder was wooing your spouse, was flirting with your husband, your wife, You wouldn't suddenly feel nothing. You would feel stirred, agitated, provoked. You would rightly feel jealous because this intruder, this rival has no business there. Because what you would say to that intruder is you better back away because this person is mine. And that ability to say mine makes that jealousy rather right than wrong. And the God of the scriptures is described as saying when he looks out at his people... He has stamped on them mine. Therefore, when Israel bows its knees to some foreign deity, when Yahweh finds his people in the embrace of a false god, when he finds his people climbing into bed with another divine being, Yahweh rightly says, I am the Lord your God, and I am a jealous God, and I will not share with another what belongs to me. I will not share you with another. I will not share your worship, the glory, the praise, the allegiance, the loyalty that is due me with another. And here, it's as if Paul felt something of that. 
that when he walked into Athens, would you take this in for a second, and he sees this magnificent city, he sees the city of Athens and the people of Athens in the stone arms of Zeus, held by the silver hands of Athena. And Paul is provoked because that's not where Athens belongs. You see, Jesus Christ had spread his hands for the city of Athens. He had stretched out his arms to hold her, and therefore he was due to have her. And Paul is provoked. He's stirred up to this feeling of jealousy that Jesus should get what Jesus is due. He is jealous for, zealous for Jesus to receive that which Jesus is due. You see, when Paul prayed the Lord's Prayer, he wasn't just mouthing a memorized line and flying through it. When he said, hallowed be your name, he meant it with every fiber of his being. That it is my desire, Father God and Jesus your Son, that your name should be hallowed. Your name should be held holy. Your name should be revered in Athens as it is in heaven. That's our prayer. Hallowed be your name. And so where your name is not hallowed, we're provoked, O Lord. And it's that stirring, that feeling, that burden for the glory of Jesus to be known in the cities that moves you to do great things. I remember hearing the story of Moravian missionaries. If you've ever read any church history, you've perhaps heard the Moravians. The Moravians were these people, incredible people. One story in particular was that the Moravians had been told that there was this people far away, distant land, who had never heard Jesus. What made it even more complicated was that the people they were talking about were enslaved people. There was no access to them. And yet the people who heard this were so moved, so bothered, so provoked that they needed to find a way to get to them. And so two Moravians in particular decided they were going to go, and they were going to go the only way they could go. They were going to sell themselves into slavery to go. So when they boarded the ship, they were boarding on a one-way ticket. This was no short-term trip back. This was saying goodbye. This was bringing your coffins essentially with you because you knew you were going there for good. And all the people around them tried to counsel them and reason with them and call them away from that, tell them how unreasonable that was, that that wasn't required. They wouldn't have it. And as the story goes, these two men boarded the ship, and as the ship sailed away, it was said that they cried back to the shore, worthy is the Lamb of God to receive the reward of his suffering. And with that, they drifted away. That would have been the last thing they heard. Worthy is the Lamb of God to receive the reward of his suffering. What moved them was they were provoked. Provoked that Jesus Christ had died for them and Jesus Christ was worthy to receive the reward from that people. And, and it's only when you feel what Paul felt that you'll say what Paul said and do what Paul did. So let's consider that third Here's what he saw, a city full of idols. Here's what he felt provoked. So then third, what did Paul do? Verse 17 says, So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. What did Paul do? He reasoned. He reasoned with who? The people in the synagogue, as he's done in every city. You could hear Luke say, like we did last chapter, this was his custom. He went to the synagogue. He went to the Jews first for theological reasons, missional practical reasons. He went to the Jews. And then after that, here also it's told, and he also went into the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. 
He goes to the synagogue. We've seen him do this before. He opens to the scriptures to people who believe the scriptures and helps connect the dots. If you were here last week, this is what we said. He's just helping them connect the dots. And I want you to hear, some of us should step into that opportunity of evangelism. And I say that because many of you grew up with family members, cousins, friends, relatives, uncles, aunts that you know right now who wouldn't look at you funny if you said Jesus or the cross or resurrection or heaven or hell. They just need someone to help them connect the dots to know that all these things they've heard all their life are real, that it matters, and that it applies to them. And so perhaps it'll be at your next family gathering that God gives you that opportunity for that kind of evangelism. But here, Paul not only speaks in the synagogue on the Sabbath days, he goes out into the marketplace every day and reasons with those that are there. When you hear marketplace in that culture in Athens, don't be thinking just sort of a a bazaar where you get fruits and vegetables. This is the center of the city where everything was exchanged. Culture was exchanged, commerce was exchanged, ideas was exchanged, philosophy All the people were there. The philosophers were there. The business people were there. The artists were there. This is the hub of the city. And this is the public square. And essentially what the verse is saying is, because he saw the idols and because he was provoked, Paul brought his faith to the public square. Did you hear that again? I just want to build on what we said last week. That essentially what you're seeing Paul again do is that he will not keep his faith within the safe quiet confines of his secret heart. He is not waiting for Jesus to return and to be evacuated out of awful Athens. He goes public with his faith again. He takes his faith into the public square. It is not going to be privately believed. He really genuinely believes in Jesus. Jesus is not just this theological abstract idea in his head. He believes that Jesus Christ really is true. And therefore, he brings his faith into the public square. He brings it to the marketplace. He brings it to the place where people are and he reasons with them. The equivalent of that would be you bring your faith to the public square. Whatever that might be. To your office. To your place of work. Among your friends. In your neighborhood. This is the call for us. And when we hear that call, I think the immediate fear that we have right away is we know what will happen. We will be dismissed or ridiculed or put down or seen as less than. And I want you to hear that the Bible is very honest with you to know the truth is that's exactly what happened to Paul. And I think that reality is helpful to set the expectations that if the church planter of all church planters And the evangelist of all evangelists wasn't immediately received but was ridiculed. It's it's more than likely that we too will go through that. And yet, here's what happens. Verse 18, when he brings his faith to the public square, some said, what does this babbler wish to say? The word babbler there is this derogatory term. It's sort of like, what does this second-rate intellectual, trying to hang with us Athenians, I mean, we're the people of Socrates and Plato and Aristotle, and this babbler, this second-rate, this hack with his second half-baked theological idea, preaching to us this foreign divinity of some Jewish carpenter named Jesus, some notion of the resurrection, they ridicule him. They mock him, saying, what does this babbler wish to say? And yet, the text tells us it's not everyone. Because while some dismissed him, some were intrigued enough 
to invite him to the Areopagus that's translated Mars Hill. And Mars Hill was essentially this hill in which all the who's who convened, and they sort of judged the credibility of different philosophies, different religious, different ideas, and they would do nothing but sit around all day and just talk. That's what they loved to do. They just loved to sit around and bat around ideas and, and sound real intelligent. They loved that. In fact, Luke says that to us. 21, now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new, Right? That's, that's what happens. It's the people who, the, these are people who have never swung a hammer a day in their life. They've never done a day's work. They just love to sit around and talk and they invite Paul to come there to swap ideas with them. And here's what Paul said. That's fourth. Here's what he saw, a city full of idols. Here's what he felt provoked. Here's what he did. He went public with his faith. And now, invited to speak, here's what he says. Listen to verse 22. Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet... He's actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now... He commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. That's what Paul says. Now, Luke is not giving for us a word-for-word manuscript. He's giving us rather a summary of what Paul said. Now, I want you to hear this section is worth reconsidering after today because whole manuals have been written on thinking through how to do evangelism, just studying Paul's strategy here. I mean, just there is a, a treasure here in, in considering how do you engage a people who don't have the dots that your church family do. When you say sin, Jesus, death, hell, heaven, resurrection, your church friends nod their heads and it's just a matter of connecting the dots. You live ever increasingly in a world that doesn't have the dots. You live in a world where when, they, when you say sin, they have no idea what that means. Our culture and city doesn't know what that means. And so how do you bring the gospel to a world and to a culture that doesn't have the dots to connect? And Paul is giving us a manifesto here worth studying. Luke is not giving us a word-for-word -word manuscript. He's giving us a summary of what Paul says. And if I could summarize the summary... I'd say, here's what Paul's doing. He is answering their questions, but he's also questioning their answers, right? 
That's how one person put it, and I think it's well said. In this section, he is answering their questions and he is questioning their answers, meaning he is not only constructing for them what he believes, he is simultaneously deconstructing what they believe. He's saying it's not enough for me to tell you what I believe. I need you to see the holes in what it is that you believe. Here's what I mean. If you're here and you're not a Christian, if you don't know what you think or have no interest in the God of the Bible, Jesus, the cross, resurrection, you're not sure what to make of heaven, hell, or if any of this is true, I do want you to hear simply this, that you're not, however, in a vacuum, as though Christians have faith and you are neutral. The truth is, you have an alternative set of beliefs by which you live your life. Now, you would never call it religion, but there's a sense in which you see the world, how you evaluate the world, how you evaluate what's important, what matters, what life is about. And dare I say, that's your set of religion. That's your worldview. That's the lenses by which you see the world. So, for example, if you're here and you say, look, it doesn't matter what you believe. At the end of the day, what matters is that you're a good person. That is an entirely fine worldview for you to have. But simply, I'd ask you, who says? Who says that it doesn't matter what you believe and that you just have to be a good person? How do we agree on the fact that you have to just be a good person? Because if it's just about nature, nothing in nature says you have to be a good beast. So all I'm saying is you have a set of beliefs that are unprovable assumptions on which you live your, your entire life. A lens by which you see the world, a set of beliefs. And simply, if you don't believe in Christianity, it's not because you don't believe in anything. It's because you believe in an alternative set of beliefs. If you don't believe A, it's because you have a set of beliefs called B. And Paul here is simply saying, have you ever examined B before you reject A? Have you ever scrutinized your own set of beliefs in the same scrutiny that you would imagine Christianity should be scrutinized? It is entirely fair game to look at Christianity carefully. But Paul would simply have you say, have you looked at your own set of beliefs carefully? So for the Athenians, let me just show you how he does it. He goes up to them and he says, listen, I see, men of Athens, that you are religious in every way. I can see that. And then he goes on to say, in fact, let me tell you about one altar, one statue in particular that caught my eye. Verse 23. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. You picture that? In this forest of idols in the city of Athens, swamped with idols on every street corner, Paul runs across one idol that says, to the unknown God. Why? Because the Athenians, like all the polytheists then, they had all these gods who had all these different domains. So you had the God of war and the God of sea and the God of land and sky and harvest and crops and fertility. And you went to these various gods depending on what you needed. Were you going to make a voyage by sea? You needed to go to Poseidon. Were you going to go to war? You needed to go to Apollo. You went to all these gods because these gods ordered different parts of life. And the Athenians figured, what if there's a God out there that we don't know? So here's their, what their answer was. They figured if a god shows up and goes, where's my statue? They can point and go, there it is. We built one to the unknown god just in case you ever showed up. And so this is their way of covering all their bases and making sure no god is ever ticked off at them just in case they missed one. Here's the altar to the unknown god. 
And Paul comes and says, the God you do not know, let me proclaim him to you. And then he says in verse 24, this God, the one that you don't know about, is the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth. He does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. He says, let me tell you about the God you don't know. That statue that you built to the unknown God, let me tell you about him. He's the Lord God who made heaven and earth and everything in it. You know what Paul just did? With one sentence, he sweeped away all their gods. Because he's saying what? Poseidon didn't make the ocean. The Lord God, the one God you didn't catch, he's the God who made the sea and the sky and the earth and the cosmos is the Greek word here. Everything in it. Implication, there's one God over all and only one true God. And this God who, who made the plains of Africa, who, who made the earth, who hung the stars in the sky, who spread out the cosmos like a blanket. This God does not need you to build him a 50-foot cubicle called a temple. He doesn't need you to make him a place. He is not a God that can be squeezed into a four-walled building. The cosmos cannot contain the true God. How will your tiny temple do so? The true God is the Lord of heaven and earth, and he is not served, he says, by human hands. You know why this would have hit them? Because in that day, they would have had people attend to all the gods. Literally, if you had a god, you needed someone to go feed that god. You literally need someone to bathe that god and wash off that god and clean and scrub down that god. And Paul's question is, how will this god feed you if you're the one feeding it? And how can he cleanse you if you're the one cleansing it? Our God, the true God, is not served by human hands as though he needed anything. You know what's amazing about what Paul's doing here also? I learned in the background that if you were going to introduce a new religion to Athens, you know what you did? You bought a piece of land, you built a temple and an altar, and you began making sacrifices. And, and that's the practice. You could start your own religion. You just bought a piece of land, you built an altar and a temple, and you made sacrifices. And Paul, this preacher of foreign divinities, is introducing in Athens a new god, except he doesn't buy a piece of land, and he doesn't build a temple or make a sacrifice, because the true god doesn't dwell in a temple. And as he'll go on to talk about Jesus, this true god doesn't need you to make him any sacrifices. Because the true God sacrificed himself for you. This true God is not served by human hands as though he needed anything. Can I just tell you, Semarod, out of this whole passage, at least perhaps devotionally, this one line has struck me the most this week. The true God that we worship does not need anything from us. He doesn't need anything from you. He doesn't need a home that you should build for him. He doesn't need food and shelter that you should provide for him. You see, he's not quoting the Psalms because they've never read the Bible, but Paul might as well have read Psalm 50 to them, where Yahweh comes to his people and he says, if I were hungry, do you think I'd come and talk to you about it? Because the cattle on a thousand hills belong to me, the world and the fullness thereof. The true God comes and says, if I was hungry or needed water or a thirst, do you think I'd come and ask you for help? Because the true God is not poor, as though he needed your charity. 
He's not holding out a tin cup, rattling it as though he needed your tithes and offerings. The true God is not lonely, needing your company or your quiet times. He's not insecure, needing your compliments or your praise. He's not cruel, needing your hard work or your service. He's not helpless, needing your labor or your help. He's not powerless as though he needs your promises. He doesn't need anything from us. There is no U-shaped hole in the heart of God that only you can fill. He has no need of anything or anyone And the wonder and the mystery of the gospel is that the one being who had no need of anything emptied everything. I mean, in a few weeks, the marvel of Christmas will be the one who could not be contained by the cosmos will fit himself as a few cells in the womb of a woman. And the one who had everything will make himself have nothing. The one who was everything will make him empty himself and take on nothing. He will die penniless and poor. This God, whom the heavens could not contain, will be the one who says, foxes have holes and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. This God, who doesn't need anything, will be the one stretched out, even stripped of his clothes, hanging naked and dying on a cross for us. This is the gospel, that the God who needs nothing emptied himself of everything for us. And Paul goes on to say, this God doesn't need anything from us, but we, we need everything from him since he himself, he says, gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. You're breathing right now borrowed breath in borrowed lungs, in a borrowed body, in a borrowed world. You have been given everything by God. And I want you to just see one last thing as as I get ready to finish here. He's not only going to give them his faith, he's going to deconstruct theirs. Because he says, listen, think about it. In fact, he begins to quote their poets to him. He's among Epicureans and Stoics. And here's what's brilliant about it. I was just thinking, talking with someone in between services. Since they've never read his book, he has amply read their books. And is ready to engage them in their world. They can't quote the prophets, so he'll quote the poets to them. They can't quote scriptures, so he has studied the world they live in. And in one moment, he can preach in the synagogue to people who have dots to connect. And the next moment, because he's provoked for Jesus' sake, he is so ready in their culture to engage them in their worldview. And so he says, in fact, even your own prophets have said, We are God's offspring. Do you see that? Verse 25. In him we live and move and have our being, or as even as some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. And now here's what he's going to do. He's going to show them the holes in what they believe. He says, listen, you don't have to take my word for it. Don't your poets, who you quote all the time, say that we are God's offspring. We are essentially come from God. We're the children of God. And I think his point would simply be this. Let me ask you. Kids don't make their parents, do they? The offspring don't make their parents. Sons don't make their dad. Dads make their son. And so if we're God's offspring, how is it that you have an entire city of gods that you made? If we're made from him, how do you have a city full of statues that you made? Can't you see that your own poets that you quote all the time would show you that we must not think that the divine being is silver or gold or stone? For even your own prophets have said, for we are God's 
offspring. Here what he's doing is he's beginning to poke holes and say, you've got this worldview that you think is invincible. You've never examined it carefully. And I'd simply say to you this. If you are going to examine the claims of Christianity, then simply having integrity would say that you also should examine the set of alternative beliefs that you hold as well. That if you're going to put Christianity up up to the microscope, and you should, then you should do the same for your reasons for unbelief or your objections to the Christian faith. Paul concludes his sermon with this. Till now, the unknown God who desperately wants to be known by you, the true God, he's overlooked all your ignorance, but now, now he set the date for judgment. And now each of us will stand before him. And now he has appointed more than that, the one man who will judge. And more than that, he has verified who this man is by raising him from the dead. And lastly, what happens when he says resurrection? Fifth and finally, what happened? 32 says, now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. I don't have time here, but if you ever want to read, if you think our culture has a hard time believing that Jesus Christ rose from the dead, I'd encourage you to read some stuff by N.T. Wright on background he's done on the Greeks and why they would have thought the resurrection of the dead was laughable. And laugh they did. And yet, the passage ends by saying, not everyone there laughed. See, what did he see? He saw a city full of idols. And what did he feel? He felt provoked. And what did he do? He went public with his faith. And what did he say? He deconstructed theirs while constructing his. And what happened? Some laughed, sure, but not everyone. Because, in fact, as I began, if the legend is true, then if the bishop of Athens were here, he would say, I didn't laugh. Because the first bishop of Athens would say, I was there. You see, history tells us that a man named Dionysius from Aragopus was the man who was there who would later go on to become the very first bishop of Athens. And Christianity began to have a foothold in Greece. And now here he would say, me and a woman named Damaris and some other men and women, we didn't laugh. When Paul spoke, we said, please tell us more. And eventually we believed. So here's what I'd say as we close. If you're here and you're not a Christian, my one call to you would be, have you ever examined your set of beliefs? It is, it is not true that you don't believe anything. You do. But have you ever considered what those beliefs are? And if you're here and you are a Christian, here's my set of questions for you. When you look into your city, when you look into your neighborhood, when you'll get to your next family get-together, what do you see? And when you see it, what do you feel? And if you feel it, what will you do? And what will you say? Because who knows what will happen? Let's pray together. God in heaven, as we've worked through the book of Acts, week in and week out, you keep showing us the need to be what Jesus said at the very first chapter, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Jesus, you were being witnessed 
even to the most culturally important intellectual city of the world in Athens, you were being witnessed. And we pray that in our time and space, we would be witnesses for Jesus. We'd go public with our faith. We ask, O oh Lord, that we would feel a love for Jesus and for his name, that we would be provoked, that it would trouble us to look into our city, into our neighborhoods, into our street, into our family get-togethers, and know that there are people for whom Christ has died, and to know that the Lamb of God is worthy to receive the reward of his sacrifice. So help us as we move out from this place this week to apply this word in various ways. Give us opportunity and courage, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll come now to communion, and communion is